0: Thank you, Pastor Spears. It's a great song to lead us into our text today. Always appreciate you ministering and leading us in uh, worship. Thank you. And that is one of my favorite hymns by far. And so it's a blessing. Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. As we get back today to Paul's admonitions on how to walk in peace in the midst of chaos. Chaos. Today is part three of a series that I've been preaching where Paul addresses a topic today that literally debilitates millions of Americans year after year. And that's the topic of dealing with anxiety. Today, we will look at Philippians chapter four, verses seven and eight, which are part of a whole unit uh, state uh, started in verse four. And going really through verse 9, which, the, which has the overarching theme of walking in the peace of God in the midst of chaos. So let's read our text, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 4 and go through verse 9. The word of the Lord says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, If there is anything, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I now attempt to preach your word, Lord, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would help us, would lead us, would guide us, and that the words that I speak would be your words, no more, no less. I pray, God, that Christ would be glorified, your people would be comforted and conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. It's an estimated that 40 million Americans each year are diagnosed with what they call an anxiety disorder. That's close to 20% of the population making it the most common, quote, disorder in America. And because our secular and God-hating world has no real answers for this spiritual need, they have classified anxiety as an actual treatable disorder, even though there's no scientific, verifiable, objective test to diagnose and confirm somebody with such a disorder. Nevertheless, the world still offers its empty solutions, solutions like psychotherapy, solutions like having support groups, stress management techniques, or even medications such as anti-anxiety drugs, antidepressants, and even beta blockers are used for people who are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Now, you'll see me use air quotes when I say disorder because I am a firm believer, as many of you who have been at Covenant Baptist Thursday nights, uh, that I don't believe in these mental disorders. And I believe they're proven to be false. And I believe that they're proven to be part of a humanistic, secular ideology that has no answers uh, and that has no way of truly diagnosing people of these certain mental disorders. And if all else fails, if the psychotherapy fails, if the stress management techniques, if the medication fails, which, by the way, I didn't know if you knew this, and, and maybe this was uh, Thursday night, but according to doctors, it's harder to get somebody off an antidepressant drug than it is to get off someone off of heroin. But when all these things don't work, you can even go join a research, a research study, a clinical study, and be tested on by these doctors to see if something would work. But I don't want to discount the, pri- the problem of anxiety because anxiety is a very real problem that affects real people. It affects real Christians like you and I. There's absolutely no desi- uh, denying it. But is it really a disorder or is there something else? Our text today addresses this problem uh, as a spiritual need, And it addresses this problem with a spiritual remedy that truly confounds and confuses the wisdom of this world and is rejected by our culture. But I want to to know, I want you to know, as we're going through our uh, Bible study before, as we've talked about Scripture being sufficient in all things that pertain to life and godliness. Scripture is sufficient for our spiritual life. Scripture is sufficient for your eternal life. Uh, It's sufficient for the things on earth that pertain to life and godliness, meaning we have all we need in these pages to be saved and to live a life that's fully pleasing to God, walking in holiness and conformance to Christ. Anxiety is a very real concern, but it's a spiritual concern, and it can be addressed and it must be addressed with the pages of Scripture. Scripture and Scripture alone will solve your anxiety and cure your anxiety problems. Well, today's text is part of a unit, as I mentioned. Starting at verse 4, going through verse 9, this is one unit that I see, and the glue that holds this unit of Scriptures together is the peace of God. You can see it there where it says, the Lord is near in verse 5. And in verse 7, it says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. And then down to verse 9, Paul says that the God of peace will be with you. Now, the context of this unit, if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 4 here, look what Paul says. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown. He says, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Well, in what way, Paul? Well, in the preceding section, starting in verse 12 through 21 of chapter 3, Paul gives the very goal of the Christian life. And I've preached this a couple of times down in Columbia at your services. The number one goal of the Christian life is to do what? and To be like whom? It's to be like Christ. That ought to be and should be for the believer. Our number one goal and our number one laser like pursuit is to be like the Savior who redeemed you, is to be like Christ. In other words, sanctification. In other words, walking in holiness. Now, walking in holiness, just as a side note, doesn't mean that you're a monk and that you're just hiding away and you've got your hands folded and you're avoiding all of the world and you're becoming so holy. That's not what it means to be like Christ, okay? Okay. As a matter of fact, if you're out in the public square and you're standing for the truth and you're offending somebody because you are in a loving way standing for the truth of God, you're being like Christ. If you're getting outside the walls of the church and you're going to fight for God-given liberties in our country, you're being like Christ. If you go outside the walls of our church and you're going to intercede and interpose on behalf of the unborn and you're demanding justice in the land, friends, you're being like Christ. So I want to reframe what it means to walk in holiness. Now, those things that you do, they must be done in also a Christ-like manner, amen? We must be able to speak the truth in love, but we must be able to stand up and speak the truth uh, when God gives us the opportunity. If you look at verse 13 of chapter three, Paul sums up this idea and says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Laying hold of what? Becoming perfect and righteous. But one thing I do. This is Paul's one focus in life. He says, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Paul's very aim in life was to become conformed to the image of Christ. Romans eight twenty nine says it: "You've been predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You've been chosen before the world began, not to just be saved and go to heaven, but so that you would be conformed to the image of His Son." Is what Romans eight twenty nine says. So now look at verse four, four uh, chapter four, verse one again. In this way, stand firm. Paul's reaching back and saying, In this, this is how you stand firm in the Lord. This is how you have spiritual stability in your life, as you make becoming Christ like your number one goal. You set your eyes upon Christ and you run as fast and as hard after him as you can. Then Paul, in chapter 4, moves from sort of the overarching command of following Christ to very practical ways to follow Christ, and gives very practical, practical commands on how to be like Christ. And as a result, the side benefit is that you and I get to walk in the very peace of God that he offers us today. I've mentioned this the past few Sundays. If you're not walking in the peace of God, you can only blame one person, and that's yourself walking in the peace of God is available to you. There is hope. You can. But you must repent of the way that you, th- that you the thinking that you have and you must set your eyes and your focus upon Christ and seek after him to become conformed to him his image. So as we look at this text, I want to ask you first, are you walking in the peace of God? Are you walking in that peace that passes all understanding? Or do you have or do you allow either internal or external pressures upon life to steal your peace. If all is taken away from you, can you say from your heart, it is well with my soul. God offers peace only to those first whom have peace with God. You first must have peace with God, meaning you first have to come to the cross and reconcile your sins through repentance and faith. So friends here and friends listening, if you're outside of Christ, if you haven't been born again, you have no way of walking in the peace of God that passes all understanding. Sure, you might have temporary fixes here and there, temporary things that gives you peace. But the inner peace that Paul speaks about here that passes all comprehension to the world is only available to those who have peace with God, who have repented and come to faith and faith alone. In Jesus. Now, as Paul goes, if you look through verses 2 and 3, he gives practical commands to walk in unity amongst the brethren and how to resolve conflict in a God-honoring way. As Paul addresses a conflict within the actual church of Philippi and names two people who are not walking in harmony and commands them to walk in unity. The next command in verse four, he says to rejoice in the Lord always again. I say rejoice and joy is a is an underlying theme of the book of Philippians. It's used more times in this book than any other epistle that Paul wrote. And notice it's a command. It's in the imperative, which means you are commanded to make yourself happy, not with the things of the world. But it says in the Lord. So again, friends, if all is taken away from you, all those things that give you temporary joy, can you find your joy in the Lord and the Lord alone? Next, Paul gives the command to let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Believers have a gentle spirit, and it's a non-negotiable if you name the name of Christ. And there's no peace of God without walking in a spirit of gentleness. Which leads us to today's text, verse 6. Today we'll look at anxiety. And anxiety will most certainly rob you of any peace with God or the peace of God. They're mutually exclusive. You can't be walking in worry all the time and having anxiety and also be walking in the peace of God. They're mutually exclusive. You've got to have You got to have one to have the other. So let's look at our text. Verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, I want to look at three things with this text today. I want to look at the root of anxiety. I want to look at the remedy of anxiety. And I want to look at the result of obedience to the text. So the root, the remedy, and the result. But first, I want to define anxiety. What do I mean here? And what does Paul mean when he says, be anxious for nothing? Here in the text, it's a verb, meaning to be anxious, or it means to be troubled with cares. To be overwhelmed with concerns. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines anxiety as apprehensive uneasiness or nervousness, usually over an an impending or anticipated ill. Merriam-Webster's also defines the word anxious in the noun form as characterized by extreme uneasiness of mind. Or brooding fear about some contingency. As some children here today that brood chicks, you're brooding them because you're supplying them the heat and the nutrients they need to live. Being anxious is when you brood fear about something that may or may not happen. I thought the 1828 Webster's Dictionary gives a more fuller explanation defines anxiety as concern or solitude respecting some event, future or uncertain, which disturbs the mind and keeps it in a state of painful uneasiness. There's a lot that we can be worried and anxious about in today's culture, is there not? With the uneasiness happening in Ukraine, that's one thing. With the uneasiness and the uncertainty happening in our own country, with what seems like in many governments like our own, the, the tyranny expanding and getting greater and almost seems like we, there's nothing we can do to reverse it. With the attacks on the church, not only the attacks on the church from the outside, but the compromising of the church from the inside. And we see the church, many cases, going in the wrong direction, which we know if it continues down the certain path will ultimately lead uh, prominent denominations into apostasy. There's a lot that we can be anxious about. Raising our own children. What, what is our children? What, are, what will our children face 20 years from now? when they have children that they're raising in our culture, unless the Lord relents and and brings about a revival and and a reformation, uh, there's a lot that we can worry about. There's a lot that can cause us to brood fear about impending events. Now, I want to make sure that I clearly uh, delineate or separate worry and anxiety from having a genuine concern. Being concerned for, for something is a healthy thing, and it's a good thing. We ought to be concerned with what's going on in Ukraine. We ought to be concerned with what's going on in the, American, in the American church and the injustices happening in our culture. But does this concern lead to overwhelming fear? Does this concern cause your heart literally to race and your palms to sweat? Does it choke you with these unimaginable thoughts that you can't get out of your head and it paralyzes you to where you can't do or do say anything? That's not a genuine concern. That's anxiety. That's worry. And according to the pages of scripture, friends, it's a sin to have anxiety. You see, you won't hear that in many churches, will you? Because most of this world and the secular, especially the secular humanistic world, places anxiety again as a disorder. So if you've been listening to the Thursday night sessions at Covenant Baptist, he puts it really well where it's like when you when you say it's a disorder and it's something that it's outside of you, you don't have responsibility for it. Right. It's something that you were just born with or inherited from your parents. But according to God's word, having anxiety is a sin, because here in the text, it says be anxious for nothing, be anxious for nothing. Jesus said, do not worry, uses the same word in the Greek in Matthew chapter six. Do not worry. So it's imperative. It's a command. We have to own it. If you struggle with anxiety and you struggle with worry, we have to own it as our own way of thinking and our own wrong way of thinking. But again, friends, if you're in Christ, there is absolutely hope. You can walk in the peace of God. You can walk without worrying and and being anxious over everything that goes on in your life. But again, we first must be responsible and own our own sin. So let's look at the root. What is the root of anxiety? Well, according to psychology today, quote, the true cause of anxiety is is being a human being gifted with the capacity to imagine a future as a mental state of apprehension about what might what might not lie ahead anxiety reflects uncertainty about future circumstances whether regarding one's own health job love life or climate change I like how they just kind of threw climate change in the definition there or a downward in the economy. Well, that gives us absolutely no helpful information, right? They basically said the root of your anxiety is because you're human. Well, let's contrast with that what, what Jesus said. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Again, same word in the Greek as Paul uses here. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, not, nor for your body as to what you will put on. So I'm just going to jump down to verse 30. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and thrown tomorrow into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? Here is the root. You of little faith. He rebukes his disciples for being worried about the things that they will wear about the food that they would eat because that was a true concern in the time. They woke up not knowing what they were gonna eat for dinner that day for the most part. And he indicts them with the sin of not having faith, ye of little faith. Now remember, Jesus for the most part is speaking to believers and he says that they are of little faith. So friends, lack of trust in God, lack of faith leads to worry. And it leads to anxiety. Now, when Jesus says you of little faith, you know he's not talking about the depth of your faith. He's not saying you need to increase your faith in a, in a vertical sense. He's actually talking about you of little faith, you need to expand your faith. You need to have more uh, width in your faith. What do I mean by that? Well, many Christians have faith in God in a general sense, do they not? As a believer, You put your faith and trust in Christ overall for salvation. And so your faith is like here and it's narrow for salvation. Jesus is saying your faith is little. You need to expand your faith and you need to believe and trust God for every single thing in your life. That's what he means by ye of little faith. Your faith is not wide enough to cover all aspects of your life. Sure, you believe in God for one thing, but you don't believe Him God, uh, God over here for another. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones said it this way you have believed upon Christ, but you don't believe Christ. You don't believe in his promises for every area of your life. So that's your root of anxiety is not trusting in God. But not only trusting in God, not trusting in his promises, his wisdom, his power, and his sovereignty. So that's your root of anxiety. It's not trusting in God, specifically not trusting his promises, his wisdom, his power, and his sovereignty. First, if you struggle with anxiety, the root could be that you don't trust God's promises. Brothers and sisters, scripture is saturated with the promises of God for those whom he saves, adopts into his family. Now, if you look at Matthew 6, Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater, meaning Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. Does not your father feed them? How much more will he not supply you your needs? He argues from the lesser, the birds. How much more you made in the image of God? If God takes care of the birds, how much more will God take care of you? He argues from the lesser to the greater. And then in Romans eight thirty two, jot this down and look it up later. Jesus or Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. It says, "He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all us, for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things?" So now it's the argument from the greater to the lesser, meaning. God gave his best, his one and only son, the most valuable person ever to live. And the, in all eternity, God freely gave him up for you. How much more will he freely give us all things? Now, we're not talking about materialistic things, although he will provide, but all, all spiritual needs, walking in peace, not worrying. How much more will God give and supply for you? When he gave his one and only son. How can this merciful God who gave his one and only son to be delivered over for you and he did it while you were an enemy with God? He gave his best, his one and only son, while you were an enemy with God. How much more will he not give you now his adopted son and daughter? All things that you need in life and godliness. Or you might be doubting, not trusting his wisdom. Are there areas of your life where you're using your own wisdom and not the wisdom of God? Colossians 2, 3, what does it say? In Christ, in him, hold all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus Christ holds all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And yet you think, and I think often, I know God's word says that. But I think this is the way I ought to approach this situation. This is the way I think I ought to think. And I ought to be worried because being worried shows that I actually care about something. That's not the way we ought to be thinking. Or you might be not trusting his power. If God is all powerful, can he not change the situation? Which leads us to the next. You may not be trusting God's sovereignty. Is God sovereign over all the universe? Go like this. Yes. God is sovereign over all the universe. How does God exercise his sovereignty? Through the works of providence. Now, the Baptist catechism that we went over gives the definition of providence. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, governing governing all of his creatures and all of his actions. It's hard to say it because we do it by song. Uh, So I have to step back and think a moment. But God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. R.C. Sproul, in commenting on the Westminster Confession of Faith on the chapter of providence, which is almost word for word for our Baptist confession, says this on God's sovereignty, on his providence. He says, now before I read this, I want you to think about the things that you worry about. Think about the things that cause you to have anxiety that by the way that we defined it earlier. So R.C. Sproul says this, God upholds all things by the free and immutable counsel of his own will. The sustaining providence of God is driven by his will and his will is absolutely free. It is bound and determined by no creaturely thing. It is not subject to our whims or actions. His will is not only free, but immutably so. Nothing can change his freedom or suddenly arise to block it. His counsel remains forever. He does not change his mind because he receives new information or needs to correct an error. He has an eternal plan that contains no defects. There is no plan B with God. His counsel is immutable because he is immutable. In all that he is, his omniscience does not change. His omnipotence never weakens. His wisdom never falters. His memory never fails. There are no mutations in his divine being or character. To what end or purpose does God uphold all things? It is to the praise of his glory. End quote. So if you struggle with worry, perhaps you're not trusting in God's providence. You know, I remember early on in my wife and I's Christian walk, I believe we just had one baby at a time uh, and she was very young. And my wife, uh, we sometimes we'd struggle with things that would happen with the baby, like, you know, crying with with now being able to comfort. If you're a parent, you remember having the firstborn that cried and you couldn't do anything to get the baby to stop crying or situations that would happen which would get us so frustrated. And I remember my wife coming across some, some writings on the sovereignty of God. And although we were Christians and I was studying the Bible, it was still not yet. It didn't click for me on the providence of God. And she, I remember her reading saying, you know, uh, if God wanted it differently in that situation, whether it's the baby not crying, whether it's the, you know, late for church and there's a dirty diaper and now you're really late, uh, God could have changed it. But God chose not to in his divine providence. So whatever it is that you're worried about, that concerns you, that causes you to lose sleep, to be uh, frozen with fear, with worry. You know, if God want it differently, that situation, he would have made it differently. And he governs everything out of the counsel of his own will for his own glory. Turn to Jeremiah 17. This is a really important text when it comes to being anxious and not worrying, and, and this will sort of emphasize the point that I want to drive home when it comes to the root of our worry being lack of trust in God, lack of trust in God. Jeremiah 17: most of us that have done any evangelistic efforts know Jeremiah 17:9. We should, right? Man's heart is what? Deceitfully wicked. Above all else, who can know it? Well, let's go to a few verses before that, five through eight. Jeremiah actually uses the heart is deceitfully wicked to overscore how we should not trust in man. Starting in verse five, he says, Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes. But will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitants. Now here's the key verse, verse 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who what? trusts in the Lord. And whose trust is the Lord. Now, what is he saying there? Well, in the Hebrew, he uses the word in the verb form and in the noun form. Another way you can say it, blessed is the man who trusts. Who trusts actively in the Lord and the things of the Lord, walking in the Lord by faith, but also whose trust in and of themselves is the Lord. Is your hope and your trust the Lord? And do you walk by faith? Do you walk trusting in the Lord that he ordains all things for the counsel of his will and for his good and for your good and for his glory? Let's keep reading in verse 8. Okay, so blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So, you want to know what the root of anxiety is? There you have it. You're not trusting God plain and simple because the man who trusts God will be like the man with like a tree planted by the water. And when there's a dry spout, there's no worry because they know that tree knows that it's going to get its source because it's planted by the water. There's your diagnosis. Now let's go to the remedy. What is the remedy? Well, we have it in our text where Paul, he says, be anxious for what? For nothing. Nothing. And then he contrasts, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So here we're given our remedy for anxiety, for worry. In everything prayer and supplication, or your, ver- your version might say prayer and petition. There are two words that are, uh, that are synonyms in many cases. But in many scriptures, they're used together. Prayer and supplication, prayer and supplication. The first word prayer is a general term for prayer, our prayer life, for instance. The second word supplication is more for specific petitions, for specific prayers. So although they are synonyms, uh, Paul uses both words to say that uh, not to be anxious for anything But in everything, you ought to be in prayer, not just in general, pray without ceasing, but pray specifically for whatever situation you're in, in everything. And the Lord's just been using that to really convict my heart over the last week that in many things, in the little things, I haven't been seeking Lord and petitioning him in everything. Walking, walking to work, because I walk, my commute's a walk. When I walk to work, I'm not petitioning the Lord to help me to work in a God honoring way, in a way that pleases Him. I'm not petitioning to help me to work diligently. Uh, Oftentimes, when I walk home, I'm not petitioning the Lord to help me to be a loving father, to be patient and kind, to lead my wife and lead my family. When situations arise, oftentimes, I'm not specifically petitioning the Lord. Oftentimes, what do we do? We don't petition the Lord for those concerns, but we petition other people about our concerns, do we not? Now, I'm not saying it's not a good thing to seek counsel, but if you look at the verse before, he says, Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. So, all men should, you should be known for your gentleness. And then in this text, it says, let your request be made known to God. He uses the same verbiage there. So, friends, your request and your challenges and your worries and your concerns ought to be made known to God first, not to other people. You got a concern about a relationship, take it to God first. You got a concern by maybe your spouse, things that your spouse is doing that are maybe getting on your nerves, <laughs> if we be honest, right? that ever happen? I know I get on my wife's nerves quite a bit. I can tell. I've been married to her long enough to where I'm doing something that she doesn't like. Take it to the Lord because the Lord will reveal, oh, wow, I'm really not um, showing compassion in a way that is showing love to her like Christ has loved the church. But instead, too many Christians let other people know their concerns and let, not let God know their concerns. Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This command to take everything to the Lord, this command by prayer and supplication, letting our requests be made known to God. That command is an outworking. This is key. Listen, it's an outworking of believers who trust in God for all things in all areas of life. Okay, don't miss that. Don't go home and say, I've got to try harder. I've got I to pray more. I've got to take my concerns to God. Yes, you do, but that is a fruit. When we realize and understand and have a deep trust in God and His providence and His working all things for good, when we truly grow our breadth of our trust in God, it's a natural outworking to take our concerns and let our requests be made known to Him. So how do we do this? How do we grow our faith? How do we expand our faith? There's only one way to do it, friends, and that's to grow in the knowledge of God, the person and work of Christ, and to grow in the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit. This leads us to have a more expanded and larger faith, as Jesus said, ye of little faith. We need faith in every area of our life. And the only way to do that is to renew our mind by the living and powerful word of God. Well, it's no coincidence. The call to worship today was Psalm 1. Turn back there. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. We'll look at the first three verses. It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he does meditate day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Now that sounds a lot like the second half of the Jeremiah text that we just read, didn't it? These are spiritual principles. He's not saying whatever you prosper in, in necessarily in life, oh, I'm going to be rich because I'm always studying the word of God. Many, many, many prosperity preachers use that text to convince people that the Bible is your, your way to riches. But he's talking about prospering in a spiritual sense, having the fruit of righteousness, being conformed, be more like Christ, which should be your number one desire, your number one goal. And how does that happen? Well, Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates day and night. Do you delight, friends, in the law of the Lord? Do you have an appetite for the Word of God? Or is it just another check off the box for the day? Now, if you're struggling with that and you're a believer, that's okay. Go to the Lord in repentance and ask Him. Ask Him to help you to stop relying more on yourself and to rely on the word of God and and your appetite for the word of God will grow. So you're not the only one that struggles. If we're honest with ourselves, we all struggle from time to time and we go through dry spells where we don't yearn for the word of God like babes nurse for their mother's milk. Do you meditate upon the, the the law of the Lord day and night? The word of God should be like balm to our soul. It should be like healing to our bones. And we ought to desire to meditate upon it day and night, to meditate upon it day and night. What happens when we memorize scripture? What happens when scripture saturates our mornings and we think about it during the day? We meditate upon it during the day as we're Praying through the day with God, and as night we're meditating upon it as we go to bed. We're learning about Him, we're reading about Him, we're studying about Him. What happens to our mind? That's the only way you can trust God more and worry less because our mind gets filled with the Word of God and we know and grow in our understanding of His sovereignty and His understanding and His mercy, His providence, His plan of redemption. We grow in our understanding and then the worries just crumble. They just crumble like sand through your fingers. They just go away because our knowledge of God and our love for God increases. That's the remedy, friends, and you're never going to hear that in the world today. That's the remedy for anyone's anxiety and anyone's worry. But again, it starts with having peace with God. This isn't available if you're outside of Christ, if you've not come to Christ and repentance and faith and faith alone. Well, let's look at the last piece, and that's the result. What's the result when we obey God here? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This really is a culmination of verses 4, 5, and 6. When we're walking in the joy of the Lord, when we're being gentle and letting our gentle spirit to be made known, when we're not anxious and we're not walking in worry, the peace of God, this idea of peace is inner rest. It's tranquility. It's quietness. You have a quiet soul. As it was sung earlier, be still my soul. Your soul is still. All the turmoil is all around you. And although... We don't stick our head in the sand. That is not what it means to walk in peace. We have genuine concerns. We want to know what's going on around us. But there's an inner peace because we know that God ultimately is in control. And it, the verse says, surpasses all comprehension. Now, surpasses, this means to be at a higher rank, superior over and above. And the word comprehension literally means your mind, your faculty of understanding. This is why all of this makes absolutely no sense to the world. It surpasses all comprehension. <clears throat> the peace of God, brothers and sisters, in its truest sense, it's impossible to understand. It's impossible to explain. It's impossible to comprehend, which is why the world which is why what the world has to offer will never satisfy your inner soul. Peace, having true peace. It's unexplainable. And yet it's not mystical. Okay, we're not talking about some charismatic mysticism here. You know, There is a, a way extreme for that. I don't believe anybody in here would succumb to that. But I've seen it firsthand where people have a, have a mystical sense of, of peace And generally what it usually is, is they ignore everything because ignorance is bliss. They just totally ignore everything. They don't want to talk about anything. And they say they have the peace of God, which in reality, they're just pushing stuff under the rug and storing it away and pretending to have the peace of God. The real peace of God will give you true inner peace. And at the same time, knowing exactly what's going on in the turmoil around us. So it's not being ignorant it's because we full, when we fully trust in the wisdom of God and the power of God and the sovereignty of God, then we will walk in peace. As, John, as Jesus said in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The peace that Jesus left with his disciples that is available to you is not the peace that the world offers. The world can only offer temporary peace, but that always goes away. God has the peace of, from him. It's his peace that he will grant to you. And I want to conclude today with a story that illustrates how this peace of God surpasses all understanding. It's unexplainable. And it happened in the late 1800s. A successful attorney by the name uh, of Horatio Spafford, who was friends with D.L. Moody. He planned a trip to Europe with his wife and four daughters. At the last minute, this was November 1873, Spafford was unable to go to the trip uh, due to a business emergency and convinced and allowed his wife and children, his four daughters, to go along. And he would take a ship later, a few days later, and and go along and meet them in Europe. And as his wife and four daughters were halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was struck by an English vessel, and it sank in 12 minutes. And all his four daughters, Tanetta, Maggie, Annie, and Bessie, drowned tragically. Spafford's wife was one of only few who miraculously, miraculously survived. So Spafford docked a ship to go across the Atlantic to meet his wife, his grieving wife. I remember reading, it's not on my notes, but he got a telegram from her uh, in something of the effect of, we've devastatedly lost our four daughters. What do I do? And that was it. Spafford docked the ship and went across the Atlantic. Hour after hour on the dock, looking, thinking only God knows what. And as the ship was going over the approximate place where his four daughters perished, the Lord provided great comfort and peace to Spafford, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And this is where he began to pen his famous hymn, It Is Well. And he started with these words, When sorrows like sea billows roll. He says, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. It is well. It is well with my soul. How can Spafford say it is well with his soul? How can he have peace like this after losing his four daughters, tragically, in the Atlantic Ocean? It's because his trust was in the Lord. He says in that song, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. He says, my sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Spafford had the peace of God because his trust was the Lord and he trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the God's sovereignty, in his goodness. He trusted in the power of God. He trusted in the wisdom of God. And although the grieving was very real, he walked in the peace of God that passes all understanding. That's the peace that the world cannot explain. It's inner peace. It's tranquility. It's inner rest. Do you have rest? Do you have that type of peace that you can lose your four daughters or lose your family tragically? And although grieve, you have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Because if you don't have that, friends, you can have that in Christ today. If you're not in Christ, you must become born again and have peace with God before you can ever have the peace of God. If you're in Christ, you know you've been born again, but you struggle with worry. You know that you're not alone. Many Christians, many of us struggle with concerns that turn in to fear and worry in an unhealthy, unbiblical way. And I would call you first to own it, to repent of it. Seek the Lord to grow your trust in the knowledge of his sovereignty and his providence. And that and that alone will help those worries crumble away like sand through your fingertips. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for your word. God, I thank you that you provide comfort to your people. I thank you, Lord, that you have not left us. You have not left us, God. Lord, I thank you that, as I was reminded this past week, your most repeated command was fear not. Help us, God. Help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding and appreciation for how powerful and sovereign you are and how you truly do govern all things according to the counsel of your own will, that there's no accidents. Help us, God, to truly embrace that and to trust your way of thinking, your wisdom and not our own. And God, as we see so many things to be concerned with, true, valid concerns, help us, God, to acknowledge those concerns Take them to you, cast them upon you so that we can walk in obedience and so that the world can see the peace that we have that surpasses all understanding. So it open up a window to share the gospel and father that you would be glorified here on earth. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.